you to, uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 3. It's perhaps a longer passage than you're usually accustomed to hear read in church, but I think you will see the value of taking a larger portion of Scripture at a sweep. Uh, my inspiration in part for preaching on Ezekiel is I spent a good time of my sabbatical just dwelling in this book. It has, it has been, for all of my life, a complete mystery to me, this book. And so I thought, it's time to spend a little bit of time. And I hope some light will be shed on it from you, for you as well this morning. So Ezekiel chapter 1, 1 through 3, 1. Beloved, listen to God's word from Ezekiel. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, as a, an immense cloud flashing with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering his body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like, like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. 
under the expanse, their wings were stretched out toward one another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne, a throne of sapphire, and high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up. He looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, this spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they're a rebellious house. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving to you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why, oh why, would I choose to preach on a passage like this? About a month before I came back from sabbatical, somebody mentioned to me, you know, Ed, when you come back, you're going to have to keep it really, really simple given everything that's going on and how confused all of us already are. Somebody this past week just said to me and added that I should do whatever I could to keep it as relevant as possible. And so why this text, which is anything but simple, and at least at first glance, anything but relevant for us this morning? Biblical scholars have suggested that the book of Ezekiel as a whole is probably the most confusing and difficult to understand book in the entirety of the canon of Scripture. There's just so much going on in this book. So many details. So many little pathways 
where we could get lost, confused, bewildered, disoriented. And that's no less true of this text before us. I mean, these living creatures, four wings, four faces, eyes under their wings, hands, full of radiant, brilliant light. The appearance then, they're in the presence of one who is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And then all of this transitions into this strange call of Ezekiel where he's called to eat this scroll that despite the fact that it's written with mourning and woe and lament, is sweet in his mouth. It's confusing. We may not know what to derive out of this text. What its meaning is for us. What we should focus on. So why on earth would I choose a text like this? Well, in the first instance, just very, very simply, I chose a text like this because I find that it is powerfully a parable for the present moment. Just experientially, when you read the text of Ezekiel the first time through the passage that I just read, it's much like, at least for me, my experience of living in this world right now. There are so many things going on. I, at times, do not know how to make heads or tails of it. I want to form an opinion about what the main message is, what I should be fighting for, what I should be declaring, what to focus on what my priorities should be. But I just don't know. Do you? It's confusing. And what's more, just as in Ezekiel, many of these passages have divided scholars over how to interpret it and what it means. So too, I heard from at least two people this past week that what's going on with COVID-19 and the mandates and the vaccines and all the arguments that are swirling around that it seriously has the potential to divide their families. And they're worried about it. So I chose a confusing and convoluted text like I did this morning because there's a match between the text and just what we're going through on in the world. But then I chose it for another reason as well. You'll be glad to know. There's not an amen at this point. I chose it because when, beloved of God, we step back from the text, we view it from a bird's eye perspective. We view it as a sweep. There is actually a very simple yet very profound message for us in this text this morning. In fact, as we stand back from the text, it will enable us to stand back from our present circumstances, allow some of the details to fade, and suggest to us one of the things that ought to be our priority for the present moment. So what I want to invite you to do this morning is to just stand back with me for a moment and to view our text from a bird's eye perspective to see what message our Lord has for us here in Ezekiel 1, 1 through 3, 3. So let's stand back. What do we see? Well, at a sweep, we see that there are three basic sections or three basic movements to our passage. We're given a piece of background information that's going to be critically important for reading the entire book of Ezekiel. And then we're going to be told what Ezekiel hears, or what Ezekiel sees, sorry, and then followed by what Ezekiel hears. So we're given background, what Ezekiel sees, what Ezekiel hears. Let's look at these sections together. 
and see the word that the Lord has for us. First, in terms of the background. Ezekiel and his countrymen and countrywomen have just suffered, we are told, an exile. In other words, it's as though last night when you were laying in your bed, somebody knocked on the door, didn't wait for you to answer, kicked it in, came up to your bedroom, pulled you out of your bed, whatever clothes you had on your back or allowing you to put your pants and shirt on, they took you out of your house, removed you from your city, removed you from your province, removed you from your country, put you in a land where they don't speak your language, and left you sitting by a river until you received further notification about what was to happen to you. You're completely disoriented. You're totally disillusioned. You don't know what the future holds. In short, you've experienced a calamity. Catastrophe has befallen you and your fellow people. And it is this context that is to guide our reading of the entire book of Ezekiel. One scholar puts this exceptionally well and puts a point on it for us. Kalinda Rose Stevenson writes this, The book of Ezekiel is the answer to profound questions. Why has this happened to us? Who are we? Do we have a future? Will we go home again? Born out of devastation, horror, and loss, these questions demand answers. They thunder with outrage. They moan with despair. They cry out with grief from a world torn apart and taken away. No fact is more important for reading the book of Ezekiel than this. The book is an effort to respond to the devastating experience of exile, to answer these questions and a thousand more. The basic question, hear this, the question which must be answered, the question which tears at hearts and minds and souls is the most difficult of all. Where is God in all of this? Indeed, we might be asking that too. Where is God in all of this? And what is God doing? Ezekiel receives an answer to this most fundamental question in his opening vision and in what he hears, in what he sees and what he hears. Where is God? Ezekiel tells us, the heavens opened and I had visions of God. Where is God? He is seated on a throne just behind a veil in that sphere that we call heaven. Sovereign over all. Not challenged unto his power one iota. Unflapped and unflappable. Surrounded by living creatures that are more awesome and more mysterious and more beautiful than we ever dared imagine. There is God. He is sitting sovereign in the heavenly realm in complete control over the cosmos. Although it doesn't appear to it to us, perhaps, Ezekiel recognizes God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. As Joanna said in her council interview, Joanna DeFries, she said, we are living in a time of questions, a time of conflict, a time of great stress and loneliness for many of us, but one of the things we must remember is that God is sovereign on the throne. Oh, how true this is, sisters and brothers. Where is God? He's right there on the throne. Or as Kenny Corey Tenboom once said, as she was going through the Holocaust in Germany during World War II, she was in a concentration camp. 
And she says, you know, we may experience lots of panic, but we must remember, Christian sisters and brothers, we must remember this. There is no panic in heaven. God is in heaven. And what is God doing in heaven during times of crisis for us, during times of catastrophe or stress for us? Well, this is where the text becomes a little more complicated because it has to do with these living creatures. If we want to understand what God is doing, we need to identify who these strange, many-eyed, four-winged, four-faced creatures who are connected to intersecting wheels in the throne room of God, what these creatures are. So what are they? Well, as I suggested, it could be very easy to become bogged down by all the details. And I do believe the details, the visual details, the graphics we are given have significance, wonderful significance. But in order to get a grip on the details, in apocalyptic literature, which is what this portion of Ezekiel is, Right? You remember when we talk about literature and genres that the type of genre or literature that you're reading needs to dictate the way that you read the book. So we all know intuitively you don't read the poetry of the Psalms in the same way that you read the aphorisms of the Proverbs. You don't read the aphorisms of the Proverbs, the little sententious sayings, in the same way that you read the history books. And you don't read the history books in the same way that you read, say, the letters of Paul. Well, same too with apocryphal literature. It has certain rules by which you need to read it. And one of the rules is, when you're overwhelmed by visual imagery that you don't know what to do with, one of the things you must do is look for the writer to give you the interpretation of the symbol. So here's an easy-to-remember example of this. In Revelation chapter 1, also apocalyptic literature, we are told that one like a son of man, who turns out to be the figure of Jesus in the heavenly realm, is walking amidst seven golden lampstands. And you go, my goodness, what are these seven golden lampstands? And interpreters might then begin playing with various interpretations of what these lampstands are. But all that you need to do is to go to the end of chapter 1 where the author tells you what these seven golden lampstands are. And what are they? They are, we are told, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the message to them there is, it may look look like Christ has abandoned you. It may look like the Lord of glory is no longer Lord because you can't see Him in your present circumstances, persecuted church, or suffering church, or failing church. But behold, He is walking amidst the lampstands. He has not abandoned you. He is more present than you have dared imagine. And so too in Ezekiel. When it comes to these living creatures, we are given a very good clue as to what they are in verse 24. When the creatures moved, says Ezekiel, I heard the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And that's it. Of course. What in the ancient Near East would have wheels attached to it, and you would find it in the throne room of the sovereign with living creatures ready to do his will. You would find a chariot in the throne room of an ancient Near Eastern king. And you would find his charioteers ready to hear the word of the sovereign telling him to go into battle. 
Beloved, the picture we have in Ezekiel with these living creatures, notwithstanding all of the details that we could spend weeks looking at, the picture that we have is of the chariot of God with the charioteers completely submissive to His will, animated by His Spirit, where the Spirit moves, they move, you know, that kind of thing, preparing to do battle on behalf of God. Where is God? He is in heaven just behind the veil. What is God doing? He is preparing to do battle on His chariot through His charioteers. And we'll say, okay, fascinating enough, but how is God preparing to do battle? In the earthly sphere. And this is where, here's another tidbit about apocryphal literature. And this is why I emphasize what Ezekiel sees and what Ezekiel hears. In apocryphal literature, you must interpret what is seen with what is heard. Whenever there's a juxtaposition or a setting side by side of something that's seen with something that's heard, you have to interpret what is seen with what is heard. It becomes the filter through which you understand what you're seeing. So what does Ezekiel hear next? Well, very, very simply, and this is where the passage gets quite easy, he hears that God is calling him and electing him and, note well, filling him with his spirit, the same spirit that was animating the charioteers in heaven, animating with his spirit to go and use his mouth and speak out against the rebellious, idolatrous Israelites in a word of judgment against them. How is God doing battle? In the earthly realm? Well, as a first order of business, He's raising up His prophet. He's raising up His spokesman to go out into the world. One that's very, very disheveled at the moment and difficult. And to speak God's word of truth. Which is, in this instance, a word of judgment. He will be God's battle warrior, if you will. But before we run off with that idea and mistake the military language here, it's very, very important to see what God's will is, what God's desire is, in and through the ministry of the prophet Ezekiel. God's desire, friends, as the whole book of Ezekiel will show us, is that in hearing the word of judgment, the Israelites and then the nations of the world will turn around, repent, and live. Listen to these words, Ezekiel 18.23, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when the wicked turn from their ways and live? The purpose is life. Ezekiel 33.7, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. Because, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways and live, says the Lord. Some of you may remember or hear in this an echo of 2 Peter 3 in verse 9 when Peter says, The Lord God Almighty desires none to be lost, but to come to a knowledge of His will and be saved. Peter is echoing Ezekiel at this point. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when God raises up a, a people to speak His word, even a word of judgment, God's desire 
is that the world would turn, repent, and live. His desire, as the author of the Gospel of John will say, is life, life in abundance that we might have. In short, friends, God's desire is that the lost be found. And the weapon he chooses to accomplish this is the person who will willingly speak his word in the world. And you know, I just think there's something in this for us in the present moment. Many of us are, as I am, quite honestly confused about um, a lot of the stuff that is going on in our world. I, I'm not sure. We're, we're put in a position where we're supposed to be able to form an opinion on a lot of different things, and I find it very, very difficult. There's competing information sources out there that give varying forms of information, and it is leading us to be divided. It's difficult. Ezekiel's living in the midst of confounding times, and what God says to him is, Ezekiel, here, here you go. I have a priority for you. I know you have tons and tons of questions, thousands of questions, but here's a priority for you. I want you to go out there and seek and save the lost. I want you to remember that there are people who are lost out there and who need to know the knowledge of God. And so be saved. Jesus has said to us, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But then he says, and you will be my witnesses. Beloved, I think it's important for us to remember during this time of conflict, this time of confusion, what we've been put here for as Christ's church and as individual believers. We've been put here to be God's lost and finding department. To have an eye out to those who are lost. To do what we can to see that the lost will be found. Last week, Sunday, after the worship fest, which I agree with Curtis, was an utterly wonderful thing. Um, We were leaving at about 7.30 in the car. My telephone rang, cell phone We answered it, and it was my brother, Greg, on the other line. And he said, hey, Ed, can you do me a favor? I said, of course, what is it? He says, well, um, we're up in Whistler right now, and um, one of our friends, a neighbor of ours, is watching our dog, Rocky. Rocky's this beautiful two-year-old or three-year-old Australian shepherd, just a mid-sized dog. And he said um, they were walking Rocky, their son was walking Rocky, and somehow he managed to get out of his collar, and he bolted. So could you go to the house, open up the front door, and because you have a familiar voice, would you just yell for Rocky, and normally that's all we have to do when Rocky comes back. I said, of course, no problem. So we diverted from going to our house and went to my brother's house. As we're pulling into the cul-de-sac, the neighbor who was taking care of the dog was driving this way, continuing her search for the dog. And I rolled down my window, and she rolled down her window, and I said, hi, my name's Ed, we're here to help. And immediately when I said that, she broke. Tears started pouring down her face. So anxious. I mean, it's one thing to lose your own dog, but it's quite another to lose somebody else's dog. And so she was pent up with all of this anxiety. And I said, don't worry about it. This, Rocky's a stupid dog. We're going to find the dog. He does this all the time. So offered whatever comfort I could. We found out we had 
the initial thought that he had just kind of done that. She kind of gave the indication they'd been looking for a while, though we didn't know just how long it was yet. We'd find that out later. So we decided, I went and I yelled for Rocky. Of course, he didn't come to the door. So we decided to divide and conquer. I was with Michelle, myself, and all the four girls. And uh, so Amanda and Kyla went in one direction on foot. And Lauren and Annalise went another direction on foot. And Michelle and myself went in the car with the heat blowing and went through the streets at a zigzag, stopping, calling for Rocky with the windows open. We did this for about another hour. And I texted my brother and said, man, we've been doing this for an hour. I have no idea. Surrey's really big. I have no idea where this dog is. And I'm not sure what we should do anymore. He said, well, I'm headed on my way down. I just found out from my neighbor that Rocky ran away at um, shortly before 2 o'clock. So it had been some seven hours that this dog was at large, but this dog was lost. And so they started, Greg and his little, his little brother, that's me, his uh, son, Luke came back from Whistler, and they were going to join in on the hunt for Rocky. Sure enough, we went further through Surrey, further out in Surrey than we had before. Still couldn't find this stupid dog. So Greg uh, finally gets there, and we continue looking for Rocky. We spent another hour. Um, it was 11.30 by this time. Um, I had gone at one point with a couple of the girls and we talked to one guy on the street. We were stopping everybody on the street. And said, hey, have you seen a stray dog? Have you seen a stray dog? And the guy said, oh, what did it look like? I said, well, it was black and it's got brown hair. It's about a mid-sized dog or something. And he says, yeah, oh, no, I, I'm pretty sure I just saw that. I, and I'm, I think it went into the park back here. I said, oh, yeah, is that right? He says, yeah, it was either that or rabbits. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, we got better and worse advice from people. So we went through the park anyways, and you might not be surprised to discover that we didn't discover anything. Rocky wasn't there. At 11.30 at night, we reconvened at Greg's house, and there was still no sign of Rocky. And everybody was worried now, because it had been 10 hours or more that the dog had been gone. Greg said, that's it. It was pitch black out, and it was also cold, if you remember last week's Sunday night. So he called off the search. I went home. I slept like a log, woke up in the morning, to a text from Greg, he'd written at just 7 a.m. and said, Rocky didn't turn up at your house by chance last night, did he? So I called him immediately and said, no, man, he didn't show up. We decided to resume the search. I thought by this time, some 20 hours after the dog ran away, that I was going to go to Wally. I had this sense, somebody on Facebook, it's amazing, you could post these things on Facebook and Instagram, lost dog, lost cat, lost rat. And people will respond to it. And somebody had said they saw a dog at 156 and 96 or something. So I thought, okay, well, if the dog got confused about direction, it could be in Wally by this time. So I said, I'll jump on my motorbike and I'll go check in Wally. So I thought I'm going to zigzag my way all the way to Wally. As I was going, I asked people again, have you seen a stray? Have you seen a stray? One lady on the street, I approached and said, have you seen a stray? She says, no, sir, I haven't. But I can tell you this, if I saw a stray... I would have it. And it was one of those moments, I was actually touched because I thought, here is a person who has a heart for strays. For Greg's stray. For my stray. God bless her. I continued on, stopped at the RCMP and asked if they would send out a notice to the police officers via dispatch, which surprisingly to me they agreed to do. I biked a little bit further down. I was coming into the Portman Bridge area um, I, in the Wally, just moving around to Wally, and my phone started buzzing. 
I thought it must be the RCMP. Surely somebody had a clue for us. Wonderful. I pulled over, pulled out the phone. It happened to be my brother Greg. And he sounded very somber. And he said, there's just one more problem. And I said, oh, man, what's that? How to get all the burrs out of his fur. You found him? We found him. And then I heard whimpering on the other end. It wasn't the dog. There is a way to get a grown man to cry. We went back to Greg's. We celebrated with Michelle and the girls. And he told us at that point that he had called the neighbor who was at Staples printing out the posters that they were going to post all over Surrey. He told her the same thing he said to me. He said, just one more problem. How to get the burrs out. And on the other end of the phone, all he heard was loud peals and sobbing. 15 to 20 seconds right there in public in front of whoever was there. And no wonder. Because what a release and what a joy when the lost are found. And when that lost thing is a dog, that's one thing. But when that lost thing is a child of God, it's another altogether. And the meaning in this vocation, people of God, the meaning to search and find what is lost, to do what we can. You see that Ezekiel eats the scroll of lament and woe and mourning, and it's sweet in his mouth? Why is it sweet in his mouth? Because he's given a transcendent purpose in his life. That by God's grace will amount to people coming into the everlasting kingdom. Oh, what a joy! A joy in heaven! This is a cardinal theme in Scripture in Luke 15 and 2. After telling the parable of the lost coin that is found, a coin, Jesus says, in the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 22, Paul says that, to the weak I become weak, to win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Is this the drumbeat of our heart? In the 17th century, the prodigious 17th century commentator Matthew Henry wrote, I would think it a greater happiness to gain one soul to Christ than mountains of silver and gold to myself. If God suffers me to labor in vain, though I should get hundreds a year by my labor, it would be the constant grief and trouble of my soul. And if I do not gain souls, I shall enjoy my other gains with very little satisfaction. But perhaps in most recent history, a writer for the Cumberland Presbyterian put it best. It is the sob of God. It is the anguished cry of Jesus as he weeps over a doomed city. It is the cry of Paul. I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Evangelism is the heart-winning plea of Moses. Oh, this people have sinned, yet now if thou wilt forgive my, their sin, and if not, blot me. I pray thee out of the book which thou hast written. It is the cry of John Knox, Give me Scotland or I die. It is the declaration of John Wesley, Thy world is my parish. It is the sob of parents in the night weeping over a prodigal child. Beloved, we live in confusing times. But here, in the confusing passage of Ezekiel, we are given a thing that can be a priority for us something to keep watching out for. To seek and save the lost. Do we remember what we are here for? 
do we remember that our time is so incredibly very short? Do you remember that a word from us or an action followed by a word might make all the difference, an eternal difference? And here, most of all, is the motive. Do we remember that the same man in the likeness of the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel saw in heaven is the same Lord of glory that made himself known to us as the crucified and risen Lord of glory, the God of unspeakable love. And do we remember that there is power in the name of Jesus, as the book of Acts shows? Who is lost that you might help get found? You can't save all, but who is close to you? In short, do you know about some strays in your neighborhood who need someone to say of them, if there were strays around here, I'd have them, or at least, I'd be after them. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we are among those who were once lost but now have been found, were once blind but now we see. You have given us a new life, given us a new joy, and given us a new hope. Lord, and we pray that you would give us the same heart for other people so often when we have discussions about evangelism or mission in this kind of way, uh, we feel paralyzed. We don't know how to start. We don't know um, where to begin. We don't know who to turn to. We feel afraid of having discussions. Lord Jesus, if we're honest about it, sometimes we're afraid to say your name in the presence of others because we know that it might make them look differently at, at us. Lord, I pray not that we would be blunt in our evangelistic techniques or without wisdom, pray that you would make us as wise as serpents and innocent as doves, but that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that are in our midst, that you would fill us with our spirit so that where you go, we go. And when we do have an opportunity, that we would take hold of it, O oh God. Please place a person on our heart right now that we can share the good news with and give us the wisdom to know how to do it as well. Help us to be your hands and feet in and through all of this, O oh Lord always exhibiting and manifesting your love and flesh, but then also to be able to speak your word. We ask this grace, O Lord, so that when we do sing Amazing Grace, that we might not only have ourselves in our minds, but those that you have given us the joy of participating in their coming to know you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.